Well, our time uh, in the Word tonight is going to revolve around the questions that you turned in this morning. And as is the case always uh, on question and answer, we, see we need to sort of jump around and we're not in one text. So make sure you have a Bible that you can look on and turn to the passages. And uh, we're, we're never able to give as much information or material as we would like because we need to move on to the next question. But hopefully at least gives some food for thought and something that you can pursue Further, So with that in mind, let's start in the Gospel of Mark with a question about a passage there. Mark's Gospel, chapter 14. Mark, chapter 14. It's been quite a while. In fact, maybe I'm not sure if ever this question has been asked. Uh, but it's surprising to me because uh, I would have thought that this is one that would have been asked uh, many times uh, through the years, but as I say, I don't recall it being asked at least recently or, or for some time, or maybe never, but it's about a passage that is a little bit unusual, uh, uh, quite unique, found only in Mark's gospel and only two brief verses. It's in Mark 14, and it is uh, related to the uh, arrest of Jesus, the trial of Jesus, and so forth, and we read in verse uh, 51, now a certain young man followed him, that is, followed Jesus, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body, and the young men laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. Now you can probably see that uh, that would raise a question. What is Mark saying? Why does he put that in there? What, what's the point? And the question, is there more to Mark 14, 51, and 52 than just a detail of Jesus' arrest, and I believe there is. Now, we can't say definitively or dogmatically, because as I said, uh, this unusual episode is unique to Mark's gospel. That is, it's not found in Matthew, Luke, or John, so all we have to go on is here. Uh, and it raises the question, why does Mark include it, and what is his point? And I believe the answer is this. I think this little uh, episode was inserted to reinforce or further elaborate on the statement that Mark just had made in verse 50. Because in verse 50, in fulfillment of what Jesus had predicted, it says, Then they all forsook him and fled. Referring, of course, to the disciples. This is when Jesus was arrested. He had told them not very long before, maybe a few hours at the most, when they were celebrating Passover, that they would all forsake him and flee and so after Passover, we are told that they sang a song, which was customary, a customary way to end Passover. And then they left Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, went down into the Kidron Valley and went to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus went there, took with him, you'll remember Peter, James, and John, went a stone's throw away. He began to pray, uh, and it was while he was there, after returning three times to find them sleeping, that Judas came with his band of of people to arrest Jesus. That's the, that's the historical setting. But in verse 50, we find that they all forsook him and fled. And then Mark adds this particular event. <clears throat> so what is going on here? Well, as I say, I believe Mark adds this to further elaborate on or emphasize not only did they all, that is the disciples, but anyone else who may have been someone that could have stood with Jesus or stood by Jesus, even this person fled. Now, who is this person? Most commentators would suggest that this was Mark himself. 
the writer of this gospel. And that is because it fits the similar pattern uh, to the gospel writers of not wanting to use their own name to sort of put themselves forward. John does this. You'll remember in his gospel he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. That is, he was overwhelmed with the fact that Jesus loved him, and so he, he refers to himself in sort of a third-person kind of way, rather than saying, I, I. John does say, I, near the end. I, I saw this. I was a witness. But usually they, they tell stories about themselves in this third-person format. So in all likelihood, this was, this was Mark himself. Now let me just reconstruct a possible, probable scenario to demonstrate what Mark is trying to get us to understand. Uh, after Jesus and his disciples left Mark's father's house after the Passover, uh, Mark removed his outer cloak and went to bed, wrapped in a, a linen sleeping garment. Shortly afterward, a servant may have aroused him. Now, this is just speculation. Somehow, he was awakened. Someone let him know with the news about Judas' plan, Judas' treachery to betray Jesus. Uh, since Judas and the arresting force had come to that home uh, looking for Jesus. So they came looking for him where they thought they might find him. Jesus had already left, gone out of the city, down to the Kidron, was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Mark is informed by, by a family member, servant or someone like that. So without stopping to dress, Mark rushes to Gethsemane, uh, maybe to, to see what's happened or to warn Jesus that, he has, that Judas is coming. And, and there is a mob to arrest him. But Jesus had already been arrested when Mark arrived. After all the disciples fled, which uh, we are told in verse 50, just prior to this, after all the disciples fled, Mark was following Jesus and his captors back into the city when some of them seized Mark. Now, we don't know if they were going to arrest him also because he was hanging around or perhaps as a potential witness. Uh, but he fled from them naked, leaving his linen sleeping garment in someone's hands. So again, I think the point that Mark is trying to emphasize is that no one, no one remained with Jesus who could have been there as a support, encouragement, or a defender to witness, bear witness of his, uh, his innocence or whatever. No one, uh, certainly none of the inner circle of the disciples, but not even someone like Mark uh, who was from the very home where Jesus in all likelihood, it celebrated Passover. So, in answer to your question, do I think there's more uh, to this story than just a detail? Yes, I think there is more to it, and I, I, I believe that is what Mark is trying to get us to understand. All right, next question says this. When we ask for forgiveness, God forgives our sins and remembers them no more. So then, uh, how on Judgment Day are they brought up again, or are they brought up again? And the answer to your question is that they are not brought up again uh, for the believer. We do read in Revelation chapter 20 at the great white throne judgment that they, the books were opened in another book, the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works, John tells us, from the books. So the implication is there, there are these books recording all of the works, all of the deeds, all the actions, all the activities of mankind. And those who are not in the Lamb's book of life, they will be judged by their works. So their sins will be brought up. But the promise of Scripture is that ours will not. And in fact, in John 5, 24, just as one example, uh, Jesus says, He who hears my word and believes and who sent me 
uh, has passed from death into life and shall never come into condemnation or judgment. Uh, so what is brought up as far as our judgment? We'll turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We'll look at one passage in 1 Corinthians and one in 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 3. And once you have that passage, 1 Corinthians 3, just hold your finger there and turn over to 2 Corinthians 5. So in both of these passages, the Apostle Paul describes what is called the judgment seat of Christ, the the Bema seat of Christ, and it is an evaluation of our, and when I use the word our, I'm talking about believers. It is an evaluation of our lives for the sake of reward. That is the purpose of this judgment. It is not, let me stress this, it is not a judgment of our sins that was dealt with at Calvary. It's not a judgment of our unconfessed sins, as some Christians try to teach. In other words, some will say, well, all your confessed sins are forgiven, but the ones you haven't confessed, well, come judgment day, they're going to be brought up and you have to pay for them. Or here's another uh, teaching that's completely inaccurate, but a common one. Well, all your past sins were forgiven. That is, all the ones prior to you becoming a Christian. But now that you're a Christian, all of those sins from that point forward, you're responsible for. God forgave all the past in salvation, but you know, if you, whatever you do from that point on, you have to answer for. Both of those uh, do complete injustice to the work of Christ on the cross, cannot be defended or supported biblically. So then what is our judgment? What is the judgment seat of Christ? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we read about it. It says that uh, um, there will be a judgment, and in verse 14, it says, uh, if anyone's work which he has built on endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So what this describes is at the, the Bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, our works, that is the deeds of our lives, are in a sense thrown into the, to a fire, and a, a purifying fire. And whatever was, Paul uses this analogy earlier in this passage, wood, hay, and stubble, will just be consumed. Whatever is gold, silver, precious stone will, be remain, will remain for reward. Now, let me ask you a question. What is sinful or wicked about wood, hay, and straw? Nothing. It's not that those things are sinful. Uh, it's just that they don't last in comparison to uh, gold, silver, precious stones. So that's the analogy. He's not saying that our works are going to be evaluated, we get punished for our sins, rewarded for our good works. No, the, the, the worthless things will be consumed, will be burned up. Those things which will remain will be worthy of reward. And he makes it clear in verse 15, if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. That is, suffer loss of the reward he could have otherwise received. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. And so then in 2 Corinthians, Paul adds to our understanding of this, by saying, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, he says, Therefore we make it our aim, this is our goal in life, whether present or absent, absent, to be well-pleasing to him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now again, that kind of raises fear in some people's minds. Oh no, what you know, bad things I've done, I'm going to be punished for those. Well, the Greek word that Paul uses here 
uh, in, the major, in the majority of the manuscripts, the earlier manuscripts, this word bad is not bad in the sense of moral bad, a moral wickedness, moral evil. It's just a word that means worthless. Again, it's the same idea. So our, our judgment at the judgment seat of Christ is to be rewarded for those things that are not worthless. So would it be accurate to say that our sins are irrelevant at the judgment seat of Christ? No, I don't think that's really accurate. Our sins are not irrelevant in the sense that they are worthless. They're certainly not worthy of reward. Um, but they do not come into play in the sense of judgment or punishment. So that's the distinction. So in answer to your question, again, just in summary, when we ask for forgiveness, God forgives our sins and remembers them no more. So then how on Judgment Day are they brought up again or are they brought up again? No, they're not brought up in any sense of a judgment as in a punishment. They're only, and brought up is probably not even the best word, they're, they're, they're consumed in the fire because they have no eternal value. Any of our works, whether they're not good in the sense of bad, wicked, and just not good in the sense of not eternal. All right, next question is over in the book of Hebrews chapter 5. So turn over to the right. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. The writer of Hebrews says, Though he was a son, or though he was, there is no, by the way, there's no indefinite article in the Greek language, the word a. Now sometimes it's proper to supplement it or add it in there. But I think this would be uh, read better if we just said, Though he was son, that is, Though he was son, son of God, deity, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And the question is, since Jesus was perfect and sinless, what does it mean that he learned obedience? And the, the sticking point that we have for this kind of statement in Hebrews 5.8 and this kind of question is because, and this is understandable, but probably most evangelical Christians do not take the humanity of Jesus as seriously as we ought to. Again, I say that's understandable because in our day, when it comes to the person of Christ, the issue that is attacked most is his deity. I mean, think about the cults. Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, the Way International. Uh, almost all cults in our day and age attack the deity of Jesus Christ. So we're highly sensitive to that, and we really fight for and defend the deity of Christ. And well, we should. But in our attempts to hold on to and stand up for and defend the deity of Christ, which we ought to do, it's very easy for us to swing the pendulum over to an unbiblical position where we, in a sense, deny his real, genuine, complete humanity. Jesus was a man, fully, truly, completely human. And that's why Luke, interestingly, a doctor, in his gospel account more than any other, emphasizes his humanity and the fact that Jesus grew, he developed, he matured, etc. So our problem with a statement like this is we can't understand how Jesus could learn anything, and that's because immediately the grid in our minds is his deity. But understand that he was fully human, and as a human, he had to grow, he had to learn, and he had to learn obedience. And so that's what the writer is saying. Though he was son... That is, he's acknowledging right up front. He was son of God, deity. Though he was son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. He learned it experientially in the sense that prior to the incarnation, the father and the son co-equal, and there wasn't this obedience type of relationship. 
That was a relationship Jesus entered into in the incarnation. Uh, and it, as a man in the in, incarnation, he had to learn to obey. Not implying that he ever disobeyed, but he did have to learn it by experiencing it and walking it. So just something to take from this is be careful in your desire to want to hold on to defend the, the deity of Christ. Don't diminish his genuine humanity. And as I said, I think most evangelical Christians do that. Let me just give you one example how, how most do that. When you think of the example of Jesus in resisting sin, does it ever come into your mind, does this thought ever come into your mind, even if you never verbalize it, yeah, but he was God. If that's the way you think, then maybe inadvertently you are diminishing the humanity of Jesus. You're, dis- you're dismissing his example as a man because you say, oh, yeah, of course he didn't sin. He was God. Beloved, understand something. The, reasons wh- the reason why Jesus did not sin was not, I realize this is a double negative, but the reason why Jesus did not sin was not because of his deity. The reason Jesus did not sin was because as a man, he perfectly obeyed God the Father. Now, then that leads people to the question, well, are you saying he could have sinned? No, I'm not saying he could have sinned. He could not have sinned because of his deity. But the reason he did not sin was because as a man, he did everything exactly as the Word of God told him to do. Let me illustrate this. Uh, It used to be that people were allowed to try to uh, attempt to swim the English Channel. It's my understanding that you're not allowed to do that anymore because too many people drowned. And so now the only way you can swim the English Channel is if you agree to do it in a cage. So in other words, you have a cage around you, and as you swim, this cage is there so that if you get tired or your muscles lock up or whatever, you're not going to drown. You might go down, but you're in the cage. They can pull you up, and you're not going to drown. Now, people who are in that cage and swim across the English Channel, do they make it across the English Channel because they're in a cage? No. They make it across because they keep swimming. The cage guarantees they're not going to you know, sink to the bottom, but that is not what gets them across. In the same way, because Jesus was God, he could not have sinned. But that's not why he did not sin. He did not sin because of his humanity, and, or in his humanity, because he obeyed God the Father. And he is our example. So don't, don't diminish or discard the example of Jesus by saying, yeah, of course, he, he didn't sin. He was God. And if you do that, then you're, you're missing out on something that Scripture wants us to grab hold of, is that Jesus is our example and should not be dismissed as our example. Now, as I look out there, I see a lot of deer-in-the-headlights look, so I fear I've just totally confused you, but that's as much as we'll say on that. All right? Next question. Uh, says this, and this is from a youngster. A little guy brought this to me, and every, uh, every month on Q&A, it's always fun. I have two or three, not the same, but little, little guys or gals who come up, and they write a question, and this is one of the little guys, and he says this, uh, how did you learn to be a preacher? So uh, I'm not sure exactly if he just wants a brief story, so I'll kind of give the brief story. I was a sophomore in high school when I surrendered my life to Christ, and um, immediately, the Lord gave me an insatiable desire for His Word. I really had a hunger for Scripture from the, the moment I surrendered to Christ. 
Uh, so much so that when I was in high school, there was a Bible college in our community there in Florida. I started uh, auditing evening classes at the Bible college just to take Bible classes to learn. I remember taking the book of Daniel. I remember taking the book of First John. I can still remember some of those books that I, I audited. Uh, but I had no intention of going into vocational ministry. I just wanted to learn the Word, and I had some other goals in, in life uh, after I got out of high school. But actually, it was the, the church that I was involved in there in Florida that uh, every now and then we'd have a church picnic, and I'd be asked to share a devotional, or we'd have some type of thing. And, and so what happened was people started coming up to me and saying, Brian, have you ever thought about going into the ministry, going into vocational ministry, being a pastor or preacher? And I, and I always say, no, I have no, I mean, I would be willing, but I really have no interest and, and no inclination. And, and folks in the body just would say, well, we think you ought to pray about it. We ought to think you ought to consider it. Maybe we, we could see maybe the Lord would have that for you. So I said, sure, I'm, I'm open to it. I'll pray about it. So I did. In my junior year of high school, I started praying about it. In my senior year of high school, I started praying about it. And the Lord just began changing my heart toward ministry so that by the time I graduated, uh, I really, really was focused on and eager to go into vocational ministry with one exception. And that was, I said, I, I, I want to go into vocational ministry now, uh, maybe as a, a missionary or uh, as an evangelist, or, but I don't want to be a pastor. That was the one thing I didn't want to be. And the reason I didn't want to be a pastor was because the pastor in our church, a great guy, loved him dearly, appreciated him, but he was kept so busy with so many things, and I watched this from a distance, that he never had time to study the Bible. I mean, he just never had time. And I thought, why would I do that? Why would I go into something that kept me so busy I could never study the Bible? So I thought, if there's one thing I don't want to be, it's a pastor. Missionary, youth pastor, evangelist, something. But not that, because I see what it, what it looks like. Well, the problem I realized years later was just the, the picture I had and maybe even the philosophy of ministry of this particular church where they never gave their pastor any freedom or time to study the Word. Um, but I went away to Bible school. I thought, I don't know what kind of ministry I'm going to be involved in, but I, I need to be trained. I need to be equipped. So I went away to Bible school, uh, went from Florida to Chicago, uh, Moody Bible Institute. Bev came from Montana here to Chicago, Moody Bible Institute, and that's where we met. And uh, so while I was there, I just kept learning Scripture. I can still remember when I took New Testament survey, and I thought, I, I feel like I've died and gone to heaven. I mean, I, I have a class where I have to read the entire New Testament. This is great. I mean, I can't believe it. And they're going to give me a grade to do this, to read the, the New Testament and study it. So I was just, I was just uh, thrilled to be in that context, taking classes in Greek and theology and Bible, etc., and as I studied Scripture, I began to realize, well, the problem with the picture I had seen was uh, it, the church really wasn't following God's intention because John 21, Jesus said, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. So if there's anything a, uh, a pastor ought to be doing, it's feeding God's sheep. And so I realized that, hey, if, if I could do that, if I could study the Word and, and feed and preach the Word, then I'd love to be a pastor. So it was in Bible college that the Lord began directing my, my heart toward pastoral ministry. And by the time I graduated, then that was the only thing I wanted to do. I wanted to be involved in pastoral ministry. So uh, to the, the youngster who turned this in, that's sort of my story. How did I go about being a preacher? How, how did I learn? Or how did I get to that point? But that's sort of my story of how I went from, from A to Z. Okay, next question uh, says this. Why and We won't turn to these because they're lists and and you can jot them down. But why don't the lists in Ezra 2 
and Nehemiah 7 match. Now, let me just tell you about these lists. The two lists are a lists, they are lists of people who were released from captivity to go back to their beloved homeland, the land of Israel. Do you remember the story? You have a, a united kingdom uh, of Israel, 12 tribes, uh, three kings reigned 40 years each. First Saul, then David, seven years down in Hebron, then he moved his capital to Jerusalem, 33 years. And then he was followed by his son Solomon, three, four, uh, three 40 year periods there. After Solomon's rule, uh, his son Rehoboam takes over, makes a, a, a terrible choice, and the kingdom splits. Ten tribes kind of break away to the north. They are called Israel. Two tribes to the south. They are called Judah, sometimes by their capitals, Samaria and Jerusalem. And uh, the northern kingdom had no righteous kings, not one. God warned them and warned them through his prophets. They didn't listen, so in 722 B.C., the Assyrians came and hauled them away to captivity. The southern kingdom lasted longer. They did have some righteous kings, but they were intermittent, and eventually, uh, the, as the prophets warned them, the people hardened their hearts, so the Babylonians came in, 586 B.C., took them off to captivity. Syrians took the northern kingdom, Babylonians took the southern kingdom. But God promised through the prophet Jeremiah, two passages, Jeremiah 25 and 29, that the captivity would last 70 years, then they would be allowed to return to their beloved homeland, rebuild the temple, which would have been destroyed by the Babylonians, and resume their lives. So both in Ezra 2 and in Nehemiah 7, uh, there are, there, there, we have lists of the people who were, who were returning uh, to the land. And they don't always match. They're very similar. Uh, but there are a few places where they don't exactly match. And so the question is, why don't they match? Here's two answers, two uh, possible reasons why they don't match. Uh, it's, it's possible that one list is a list of the people who were on the list and intended to go. So it was a list written in ahead, of, ahead of time. The other list was the list that was written after the fact of those who actually did make the journey. And that would explain just a few nuances of difference. But I think even more than that, a second reason why they don't always match is that actually they probably do match, but we don't recognize they match. And that is because when the second list was written, the name that was used was not always the exact same name, though it was the same person. And we don't recognize that. This is the case in many languages. I'll never forget when I first started going to Russia, and I would meet a lot of, uh, of, of men who were called Sasha and a lot of men who were called Alexander. And it was quite uh, shocking to me when I found out that Sasha is short for Alexander in Russian. That doesn't seem to fit. And so if someone had given a list and they said Alexander was going to go and then another list, so Sasha came, we might say, oh, they don't match. Well, it's, they do match because in the Russian language, those are equivalents. Hebrew has the same thing. There are lists of names sometimes where a person is named, then he is called by another name, and it's either an abbreviation or a shortened form or a variation, but they don't always look the same. And, of course, people who are looking for some way to accuse the Bible, oh, there's a mistake in the Bible, see, you can't trust it, etc. But it's, a lot of times it's a language issue. All right, next question is also by a, a youngster. Uh, says this, uh, if knowledge feeds love, like you said this morning, why isn't knowledge at the top with love? For example, in the fruit of the Spirit, it's love, joy, peace, patience, etc. And in 1 Corinthians 13, the greatest of these is love. 
Well, I think one of the reasons why knowledge isn't put up there is because even though biblical knowledge feeds love, there's a danger with knowledge. And it's easy to overemphasize it because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8 that knowledge puffs up, 1 Corinthians 8, 1, but love builds up. So even though knowledge is emphasized often in Scripture, um, it's, it's not put up there on that same plane with love because of our, the own, our own sinfulness, the tendency of our own hearts. Uh, you know, pursue knowledge, be a knowledgeable person. Well, it's, uh, for some people, that's like trying to put out a fire with gasoline. You're just playing to their ego, and uh, you, you're, you're pushing them in the wrong direction. So knowledge is important, but you're right that it's not, uh, it, it's always a knowledge that is to feed love, love for God and love for others, not a knowledge that set, stands apart from love. Because as Paul said to Timothy very succinctly, the goal of our teaching is, not knowledge, love from a pure heart. So why do we instruct? Why do we give knowledge? Why do we pass on knowledge? So people can have more brain power? No. So people will love. They'll love God. They'll love others. Okay, next uh, question is uh, not on this passage, but uh, we can turn to 2 Corinthians for this one. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And the question uh, is this. uh, What are your opinions on people visiting heaven, like the book Heaven is for Real, People who have visited hell, I, I don't know their names, that they said, uh, can it be explained biblically or is it uh, totally unbiblical to believe that they travel to those places? Um, you said, what is your opinion? I'll give you my opinion. And it's not only opinion, but it is opinion, opinion based on this passage as well as others. Uh, I don't think any of them are valid. That would be my, I don't believe any of them are valid. Uh, here's a couple reasons, just to give you a couple reasons. One is, Paul visited heaven. Uh, In 2 Corinthians 12, he talks about it. But I want you to know the way he talks about it. Again, he talks about it almost in the third person. Uh, He says, or verse 1, It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions, revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a woman was caught up to the third heaven. Now what's the third heaven? For the Jewish people... Heaven, first heaven was this right here, the air that we breathe. Second heaven would be what you look up and see. And then the third heaven, the abode of God. So he's saying he was caught up to the abode of God, what we would call heaven. I know a man caught up to heaven, how he was caught up into paradise, and he heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast except in my infirmities. And then he says in verse 7, unless, it sounds, you say that doesn't sound like Paul because he's talking about someone else. Verse 7, unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations. And there we get the clue that he's talking about himself, but in a deferring kind of way. Unless I should be exalted, because Paul had this experience, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, etc. So Paul says, just in, to paraphrase, I was caught up into paradise, and it's not lawful for me to say, to tell you what I saw, what I experienced. Now, it's just the opposite today. 
people who supposedly have these experiences are eager to tell you what they experienced, and they're eager to write a book on it, and they're e eager to get on the speaking circuit, and they're eager to make a lot of money from it. And the, the, the worst part about it is that if you really, if you take seriously their statements, if you take seriously their, their statements, some of the statements are made are, are completely unbiblical. The, the little child that supposedly went to heaven, some of his descriptions uh, contradict Scripture. So we know if it contradicts Scripture, it can't be from God. Or if it doesn't contradict Scripture, you have a situation like the, the first of these books uh, by uh, the gentleman, I think his name was Don Piper, who, uh, who, came, who was the first in, in this line. Uh, if you read his book, he will tell you very clearly that when he went to heaven, he didn't see God. He didn't see God. He just describes what he saw. He saw beauty and majesty and all of this thing. Well, now on his speaking circuit, he's saying he did see God. And when he was confronted with the contradiction, his response, not putting words into his mouth, his response was, I forgot. I for How do you see God and forget you saw God? And then you remember later. It, I mean... Not to be, you know, unkind or ungracious, but that is, it's ridiculous to, to write a whole book and say, I never saw God, and then later to change your story, because now everybody's heard the first story, it needs to be more dramatic to draw the crowds. I saw God. Well, hold it, you said you didn't. What's there? Oh, I just forgot. So those kinds of things are what lead me, both scripturally and then uh, practically lead me to the view. I don't, I don't believe any of those have visited heaven, visited hell, are are real. That would be my, my view on it. Our right, next question says this. Uh, in the New Testament, reckoning of time, with a new day beginning at sundown, is evening the end of the old day or the beginning of the new day? And the answer to this question is, uh, it depends. And here's what it depends upon. It depends on if the writer is writing from a Jewish point of view or a Gentile point of view. Point of view. And what I mean by that is that the Jewish people, for Jewish people, their day begins at sundown. And it ends then the next day at sundown. So, for example, in Israel, those of us who are just there, um, I, we didn't really have a chance to see this because we weren't at Jerusalem really for Shabbat or Sabbath. But I've been there many times uh, for Sabbath. And uh, Friday night, sundown, uh, there's a, a place in, in modern Jerusalem called the Ben Yehuda Triangle. It's a very active place. It's a neat place to go, stores, shops, etc. And when you're there, it's very busy every night of the week. But on Friday, as the sun's starting to set, it's empty because it's Shabbat. The day begins when the sun sets. Their Sabbath begins Friday night. And then Saturday night, as soon as the sun sets, the Ben Yehuda Triangle just fills up again. Everyone's out there playing music, talking etc., sharing coffee and pastries and all of that. It's because their day goes sundown to sundown. But that's not the, the way Gentiles would reckon time. Of course, we would say the day begins with sunrise. So uh, you can't just state this definitively one way or the other. You have to look at, is this being written from a Jewish point of view? If so, it's going to be sundown to sundown would be the day. Uh, but if it's in a context where a writer is writing from a Gentile perspective or to Gentiles then he probably would be describing a day in a more typical way that we would describe it from sunrise to sunrise. So each, each context needs to be considered uh, on its own. 
All right, next question says this, or there's a, a few questions here, kind of similar along the same line. Uh, comments on negative confession, is it a self-fulfilling prophecy? For example, Job said, what I feared most has come to pass. You ever heard this one? This is a very common view. It's called a negative confession. This is part of the faith word movement that you have. There's actually power in your words in the positive side and on the negative side. I mean, they're really, they're, they're, your words are miraculous. And so if you say something negative like, oh, you know, I bet you I'm going to miss my plane. You're going to miss your plane because you said it. And so it's, uh, it's even more than a self-fulfilling prophecy. A self-fulfilling prophecy is where you state something and then, uh, you know, through circumstances it ends up happening or maybe you inadvertently cause it to happen. But a negative confession, if you see that term in Christian circles, it's not one that ought to be in Christian circles uh, because it's unbiblical. But negative confession is the view coming out of the faith word movement. Your words have inherent power. They are miraculous. And if you make negative statements like Job, and this is the way they explain the book of Job. They go to that statement where Job says, what I feared most has come upon me. And they say, that's why what happened to Job happened. If he hadn't, set, if he hadn't had feared that, if he hadn't been afraid that that was going to happen, and maybe he stated that in the past, it would have never happened. Well, if you just read the Bible and what the book of Job tells you about why it happened, it had nothing to do with Job's negative confession. Nothing whatsoever. So is that a biblical concept? No, it's not. It's a, it's a completely unbiblical concept. Uh, next question says this. Uh, movies or books uh, involving spirits, etc., witchcraft, does that leave an opening for demons? And I would answer the question by saying it can. It may. It doesn't necessarily automatically um, leave an opening. But Paul did say in Ephesians chapter 4, don't nor give place to the devil. And he wrote that to Christians. So what that tells us is that we should not automatically assume, well, just because I'm a Christian, I'm protected from any uh, any demonic oppression or demonic attack, because that's not true. If, as a believer, you open yourself up, you leave yourself open, then you, you have, there's no guarantee in Scripture. And usually how Christians come to that, that conclusion is they say, well, it's impossible for a Christian to be demon-possessed. Well, what they're saying is, and rightly so, is that if a Christian has been bought by God, belongs to God, 1 Corinthians 6, you're not your own, you're bought with a price, then they can't be possessed or owned by a demon. That's true. That's true. If you're a child of God, you can't be owned by a demon. You're owned by God. You're bought with a price. You belong to Christ. But that's not necessarily true that because you belong to Christ, that if you open yourself up to demonic activity, that you won't get that happening in your life. So can things open us up? Absolutely. Things can open a Christian up to demonic. Yeah, I'm not going to quibble over words because words like oppression, we try to split hairs here, possession, oppression, etc. Uh, the, the terms aren't all that important to me. Just to say it this way, uh, if you're a Christian and you open yourself up to demonic attack, then yes, demons can step in and, and oppress you, attack you, whatever term you want to use. Uh, next question says this, uh, I heard teaching years ago, and this is, these questions are all on the same sheet, and someone's obviously wrestling with some teaching they heard about negative confession, self-fulfilling prophecy. A lot of these are fitting together. I heard teaching years ago about praying for others may leave yourself open for trouble. Again, I, I would have no idea how anyone would, 
what passage they would use to twist to try to say that. But mark it well, if they teach that, they're going to have to find a passage to twist. Because when you have Scripture repeatedly saying, pray for one another, pray for one another, and you have someone coming along saying, but be careful, because if you pray for others, it may leave yourself open for trouble. Well, our response ought to be, well, so what? Even if it does, even though there's nothing in Scripture that would indicate that, even if it does, if God tells us to pray for others, we pray for others. We don't say selfishly, oh, no, that'll open me up. to. Uh, so I'm not going to pray for you. I'm not going to pray for people. So, again, if, if you have a passage in mind, uh, I'd be glad to, to look at it. But it would be a twisting of Scripture um, to, to suggest that. Next question, imagery, imagination, is that a good idea in the Christian life? Example, Norman Vincent Peale. Those of you who maybe don't remember Norman Vincent Peale, uh, Robert Schuller, they're sort of joined at the hip. It's the, the power of positive thinking, uh, imagery, imagination. Again, it's sort of the flip side of the coin of negative confession. You imagine the right things. You have imagery. You can, you can make things happen. It's not exactly... Norman Vincent Peale, Robert Schuller are not really uh, in the faith word movement. They're, it wouldn't be accurate to lump them in that, but I think it would be accurate to say they're sort of a precursor to the faith word movement because... The, the men like uh, Copeland, Kenneth Copeland, Kenneth Hagin, those guys, uh, Benny Hinn, that have really popularized the faith word movement, they basically piggybacked off of the teaching of Norman Vincent Peale, Robert Schuller, and just taking it to the next level or taking it to the next step. So uh, it moves from just having positive thinking to positive words, and then you can make things happen. So um, Norman Vincent Peale, Robert Schuller were very, very popular years ago, uh, and occasionally... They said things that were accurate biblically. I mean, anybody can. But for the most part, uh, their teaching did not, it, it was not biblical. It just, it was uh, psychological, psychosomatic, whatever you want to call it. And that's, that's all it was. Now, just a little footnote on that. Uh, just a side note. The Bible does talk about the importance of positive thinking. Now, not the way Robert Schuller or Norman Vincent Peale, but the importance of being thankful, right? 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, everything give thanks. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 28, we know God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. So Scripture does talk about us, uh, reason for us to be positive, to know that God is in control, that, that God is sovereign. He has a plan. Genesis 50, Joseph says to his brothers, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. But it's not the exact same kind of positive thinking of Robert Schuller and Norman Vincent Peale. And then the final question for the evening is uh, from R Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, so let's turn there as we close. Hebrews chapter 12. And based on verse 1, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, etc. Uh, so great a cloud of witnesses. And the question is, please explain so great a witness. Uh, Pastor John, didn't you preach on this last Sunday morning? So to answer this question, get John's message. It's on the website, and then you can listen to it. It'll answer your question, all right? But just in summary, the witnesses here uh, are not so much, it's not the idea that is often portrayed from this passage that we're in a big, you know, we're in a big uh, stadium, and we have all these people watching us. They're witnesses, and they're cheering us on. And that idea isn't really the main idea. The idea is coming off of chapter 11, uh, these, these people who are in the hall of faith, these people who have gone before us and they've left an example for us. And, and the writer of Hebrews lists all these people by faith, Moses, by faith, Joseph, by faith, 
you know, Abraham had said, oh, these are the, the great witnesses. These are people who have borne witness to the fact that faith, that God honors faith. Maybe not always in this life, but ultimately faith will be victorious. And so that's the idea. We have those who have given us a witness that it is worth it in the end. Be faithful to the end. As the writer of Hebrews said a few chapters ago, chapter 6, verse 10, God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love that you've shown toward his name. God doesn't forget our deeds, our good deeds. Uh, He's faithful, and it is worth it to be faithful to him to the end. And there have been many who have gone before us who could bear witness, and that is the so great witness that is being referred to here. Great way to end the uh, evening uh, as a reminder to us to be faithful. Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Father, as uh, we just closed with this thought out of Hebrews, uh, I pray that it would be uh, something that sticks with us. Maybe we won't remember uh, many of these questions and answers, but may this one stick with us because it's it's an exhortation to us that is so applicable that we need to run the race, we need to run with endurance, we need to be faithful uh, because faith ultimately, ultimately is victorious is rewarded. Not always in this life, as we see here in Hebrews chapter 11. Some received miraculous deliverance. Others were tortured. tortured. Still others had trial of mocking, scourgings, imprisonment, chains, stones, sawn in two, tempted, slain with the sword, wandered about. Yet they maintained their trust in you and their faith in you. May that be said of every one of us. May we be faithful till the day that Jesus calls us home. We pray this in his name. Amen.